Tonight we're opening our Bibles to near the beginning, not just of our Bibles, but also of human history, to Genesis chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 13 of Genesis chapter 3, and then continue, continuing with verses 20, uh, verse 22 through 24, so the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for the Lord knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man in the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. I'm wondering what is the most miserable you've ever been. I can remember as a child going to cadet camp. Cadet camps are probably better organized now than they were there when uh, when, uh, when I was young. I remember this particular camp being set up in a valley and it rained. And I was in an old army canvas tent and it rained through the tent. And my sleeping bag got wet. And in the morning the wood was wet, which meant that our breakfast was smoky And the eggs that were supposed to be well done were still runny, and the pancakes were still squishy in the middle. And I remember my clothes being wet and smoky and thinking to myself, this is terrible, this is miserable. As a child, that's a version of misery. But misery is really anything, any situation in life in in which we feel the weight of life not being the way it's supposed to be. It could be misery in something like a camping trip gone wrong. 
But it's felt more keenly in different areas of life where things are not the way they're supposed to be. A marriage that's gone wrong, family relationships, damage that is done, a job that doesn't go on but ends. There are all sorts of miserable things that happen in this world. And tonight in question and answer 19, the Westminster Shorter, I want to read with you what that misery is really all about. The question is, what is the misery of our fallen condition? So what is this misery? And the answer is, by our fall, all mankind lost fellowship with God and brought his anger and curse on themselves. We are therefore subject to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. When I was planning this sermon, I asked someone in our office, what's a suitable title for this? And she said, doom and gloom. And so you'll notice that's the title of tonight's sermon. It is Doom and Gloom. And one of the most surprising things of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the thing that we say helps summarize for us the Word of God, is not this question, but where the catechism begins. I've told this story before, but I simply want to remind you of this truth before we look at the teaching of Genesis chapter 3. You know that for a number of years I did ministry in a prison to men who were Christians and some who were not yet Christians, and if I would ask them, what does Christianity want from you? Why would you become a Christian? The answer almost universally is, Christianity wants me to become a better person. Well, in a sense, there's truth to that. But that's not really at the core of what Christianity is about. It's more of an effect of Christianity rather than its core. That answer, if that's the only answer that we give, Christianity is about making us a better person, that answer is both dangerous and damaging. The answer to the question that begins the catechism, what is our primary purpose, what is the chief end of man, is not to become a better person, it is to know God and then this, to enjoy Him forever. Christianity is about enjoying the Creator God. To understand what it means to enjoy God, we need to go back to what is wrong and what keeps us from that enjoyment of our God. And that's really the first part of the answer that I read for you. What is our misery? What causes our misery? How do we see that misery? And the answer is, all mankind lost fellowship with God and therefore brought his anger, punishment, and all the other miseries that results. At the very heart of what is wrong and what keeps us from enjoying God is that we lost fellowship with the Creator. And tonight I want to explain to you what it means that we lost fellowship with God. And I want to do that by explaining three things. First, what that fellowship is. Second, what it means that we lost it. And third, whether or not it can be restored the first question is, what does it mean to have fellowship with God? It's the reason I chose to preach tonight from Genesis chapter 3. If you go a couple of chapters earlier in Genesis, you can't go any earlier than chapter 1, there we read a conversation, no, not chapter 1, but verse 1 rather, of chapter 3. We read a conversation between the evil one that is Satan or the devil and the first woman, Eve. And their conversation is about what God said to the man and the woman about what they could eat in the garden. To appreciate that, you have to go back to chapter 2, and you can just look there very quickly. 
It says in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that Adam and Eve could eat from anything they wanted in the garden. Anything. Go ahead and eat anything you want with one prohibition. They could not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree that was called the knowledge of good and evil. Before the prohibition, just think of what they could do. Sometimes, if you're very hungry, you might go to the grocery store and everything looks good. Have you had that experience? Now imagine going to a very, very good grocery store with very good fruit and vegetable section. Maybe you love fresh pineapple. Maybe you love a sweet tart apple. My favorite fruit is a red, juicy, red red haven peach. Nothing is better. We had a peach tree I planted in my first, second pastorate. It grew for five years, finally had a spring where the peaches, the, the blossoms were not killed by the early frost. We had bushels of peaches, and they were the best peaches I've ever eaten. Fresh from the tree, juicy, delicious, sweet, incredible. I have to swallow now. <laughs> Imagine God giving to you the best, the freshest the most delicious thing. It was like the best produce section except for those February strawberries that we get around here. Instead, the garden was filled with the very best of God's creation. And the only thing, as verse 9 says, that was exceptional about that garden is that there were two trees in the middle One was called the tree of life. The other, as we read, was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were not allowed to eat from. If they ate from that, they would know good and evil. Or more simply, by eating from that tree, they would introduce evil into this world. And so God's prohibition to them was not simply about eating. It was about the desires of their heart. Because if they ate from that tree, they would be rebelling against God. The thing that God said not to do, something in their heart would say, go ahead and do it. And we read in chapter 3, that's exactly what happens. They're tempted. They think, well, that sounds like a great idea to know good and evil like God. That's what I desire. That would make my life better and more full. That would be a good thing. And they go ahead and eat. They value their own opinion, their sense of God's word more than they trust God himself. And in chapter 3, as we read, they eat. And to quote, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now their open eyes does not mean that their eyes were closed before that. They wandered around with closed eyes. Obviously, it means that they understood things they did not know before. And one of the things they understood was that they were now naked, and not just in the physical sense, although it was in the physical sense, but now they felt exposed. They were missing something. Something was now gone that was present there before. What was missing? The rest of that verse says that they sewed fig leaves together to cover their bodies. That covered their physical nakedness, but that was not enough because we go on to read that when God comes into the garden to walk with him in the cool of the day, as evidently he had a habit of doing, instead of running to God, 
instead of wanting to be close to God, even though they were now physically covered, they went and hid. And again, I ask you, what made them feel bare? What made their souls feel exposed? What was missing now? And I think we can rightly call what was missing was fellowship or communion with God. That was gone. Now, as I thought about preaching this sermon, I thought long and hard about how to describe that kind of fellowship, that kind of communion. And I'm going to give you two examples from my own life that at least partially capture what that fellowship or communion is is like. And I'm going to take a little risk with this first one, and I hope the people involved will forgive me. I'm going to start with the life group that's going to be meeting at our house on Wednesday of this coming week and has been meeting for a number of years. You know, when you start something new with a group of people, you always wonder, well, how's that going to work? And what's happened over the last number of years is we have developed a relationship with each other for which I am deeply grateful. What does that mean? Well, we read the Bible together, we pray together, we've even sang together, we eat together, but you can do all of those things and not really experience fellowship, you know that? Because a lot of those things you can just do at a restaurant. You sit down and eat and you can talk and not have the kind of fellowship that I'm describing here. So what goes beyond simply the activity to this deep fellowship? It's this. Sometimes we cry together. (laughs) Someone noted to me when I posted a picture one time of our life group, it should be tagged, we cry together. And it's not because we just sit down to do that. But because we share the level of our lives in which we know the things that hurt the most and we celebrate the most together. We have a bond. We trust each other. We can be open and free in what we say, not to criticize, but to challenge. I've noted that the last time we had life group, my life group had to tell me that I was gossiping in something I was saying. And they were right, spot on rights. When you have this thing that feels very elusive often, this deep bond or fellowship, you understand that there's no reason to have what Adam and Eve felt when they ate, that is shame. Shame in the Bible is a thing that separates us from another. We say we don't want people to see us as we really are. What we want to do is go and hide. I've used the illustration of picking my nose. If you see me picking my nose, I feel ashamed. Not because it's morally wrong, but because I know that you feel a certain way about me at that moment. But when you have fellowship, when you have this kind of communion with each other, The shame boundary is lowered, and the connection then becomes deeper. I'm not suggesting that everyone has a similar kind of experience in a life group. I hope you do. If you don't, of course, you can talk to one of our pastors about helping with that. Or if you don't belong to a life group at all, please. I'm saying this not because it's a program. I'm saying it because I need it. And maybe you sense that need as well. 
you can find that same kind of companionship, that same kind of connection, that same kind of communion in other human relationships as well. If you're married, hopefully you find it in your marriage, maybe with a friend, maybe with an extended family member. I found that in my own life, it's exceedingly rare to find that level of connection. My dear wife pointed out to me on our vacation, I'm not sure why exactly, but it made a lot of sense to me. She said, do you know how many men have close friends at the age of 50? She said, go back a couple of decades. Most men would say between four and five close friends. You know how many close friends men at the age of 50 have now self-reported? It's very easy for me to show you because it doesn't require any fingers at all. None. That communion that we desire is not just a male thing. It's a human thing. We want that kind of close fellowship or connection. The place where we know and are fully known. But I can also say tonight that whatever fellowship we have with each other is less than what we can experience with God. Because every single person in your family, your spouse, your best friend, your life group is limited. They're also imperfect. Which means sometimes you will not open your heart because there's good reason not to. There will also be times where the ones you are closest to are not with you. Because they're limited in space. But I want you to hear tonight that God is always with you. He is perfect. And He is wonderfully capable of a communion that not even human beings are able to provide. Here's a second illustration I have for you. I remember a man when I was in prison who was put into solitary confinement. They called it the hole for something I'm pretty sure he didn't do. I never second-guessed prison sentences or punishment in the prison. That wasn't my job. But when he was released after those 30 days, I asked him how he managed to be in solitary confinement for 30 days. The only people he saw for 30 days were the guards delivering his food. That's it. Even the strongest and toughest men, after a month of solitary confinement, would weep when they were released into general population. His answer to me was very simple. He said, I made it only because God was still with me. And that's what I mean by a communion with an almighty, transcendent, everywhere present, perfect God. There is a level of communion possible with God that your heart longs for and maybe even is searching for in other people and you find it in places, in beautiful places, in wonderful places. And yet I wouldn't be surprised that even if you have it, you even long for more. And the reason that you long for more is because of the second thing I wanted to talk to you tonight. The first is what we lost, the second is what it means that we lost it. After Adam and Eve rebelled against God, there was one immediate and one long-lasting effect. So two things. The most immediate is that they knew they needed to hide themselves from God. Isn't that interesting? 
Because they must have known that God is everywhere present, that God can see everything. And yet they thought in their minds when God was walking in the cool of the day, the most sensible thing to do was go hide somewhere behind a tree, like God wasn't going to find them. That's ridiculous. Why would they do that? The answer comes in verse 11 of the passage we read. God asks, who told you that you were naked? Or if I can just put it this way, who told you that you need to feel ashamed? And the second question is, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Or put it this way, to add to your shame is now this, you're guilty too. You feel the shame of not wanting to be in my presence because you are guilty of offending my word. And the immediate impact of sin in this world is that every single human being after Adam and Eve will continue to struggle with the two, those two things. The immediate impact of sin is that we feel guilt and shame, and that's not bad. Because that guilt and that shame communicated to us very powerfully that we are missing the fellowship with God that we desire. There is something that stands between us and a holy God. Things are not right. They are not good. We're looking and longing and searching for something all of humanity is. You may be the most cold-hearted, stubborn unaffected by anyone else person who has existed on the face of the earth in all history and yet i'm willing to bet that if we scratch deep enough in your heart you struggle with shame and guilt just like i do because they are unavoidable unavoidable because of the sin that has entered into this world you sense the thing that you ought to feel, that is, loss of fellowship with God leads to shame and guilt. But there's also a longer-lasting effect that is noted in verse 24. You think, well, isn't the sin and shame both immediate and long-lasting? Yes, it is. But verse 24 tells us there's an even longer-lasting effect It says in verse 24 that Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden. Or put it this way, they were displaced from where they belonged. And I don't mean just that they were driven out, but the Garden was the only place that they had ever known to live. And hear this, it was the only place that they had ever met intimately with God. It's the only place they'd experienced fellowship with God. And it's not to say after they left the garden that God just disappeared from their consciousness. No, they continue to have connection with God. But the intimacy of that fellowship, that pure, unbroken, untainted by sin fellowship with God was lost when they left the garden. So that the long-term effect of fellowship with with God being broken by sin goes beyond the guilt and the shame that we often feel to that deeper and long-lasting sense that we have been displaced, never quite at home, that there's part of our reality that we're longing for that we're probably not going to get. Or to use the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, we are now strangers and aliens in this world, looking, as Hebrew says, for a better home. 
Which brings me to the third question I ask tonight. What is this fellowship? The second is, what does it mean that we have lost it? We carry guilt and shame and a longing for the place where we belong. The third question is, can it be restored? Now I'm taking a risk with you and asking this question because Genesis chapter 3 does not answer this explicitly. Rather, it anticipates not just the next chapter, it anticipates all of the rest of what comes in the Scripture. (laughs) To put it as grandiose as possible, chapter 3 is the introduction to the rest of what God is going to do in human history. The question is, can that fellowship be restored? Is it possible that those of us who bear this guilt and this shame because of our sin and are longing for the place where we belong, is it possible that we can be restored to the fellowship that we had when we were in Adam and Eve? And the answer most certainly is yes. And I want to show you why that's true. I don't have a great deal of time tonight to show this, so I'm going to just challenge you to work this out a little bit on your own. One of the things you will notice as you read through the Gospels is the way that Jesus forgives sin and welcomes the people he forgives into his fellowship. Think, for example, someone who suffered with a serious disease. Jesus doesn't pass them by. He does not say, go away from me. He welcomes them. He says, come to me and I can heal you. I forgive your sin. You're welcome to be with me. The guilt of your sin is overcome. Think a couple of weeks ago from John chapter 5, the man lying by the pool, waiting for the water to be disturbed because he had no other hope. Jesus says to him, your sins have been forgiven. Go and do not sin anymore. That would be an amazing thing for this man to hear. And the power of Jesus' restoring his legs meant he could be with other people, not just with Jesus, but with the rest of his community. Imagine, remember, that those who were deformed in any way were not allowed into the temple to worship God as those who were whole. Jesus, by healing the man, was saying, you can go now into the presence of God. I've made it possible Your guilt is gone. Your shame is covered. Go and be in the presence of God. You see, the overcoming of the guilt and the shame, the miracles of Jesus, it's not too much for me to say that's really the point of what Jesus is saying. Or you can also see that applied more generally in the promises of the gospel. That your sins are atoned for, that is, they are covered by Jesus. And therefore your guilt is gone. Or the shame that we feel. The shame that Adam and Eve felt in the garden when they were laid bare. Is overcome by Jesus as he is bare on the cross. There he is taking the shame that we feel on himself in his death. So that First John says when he appears we will feel no shame at his coming. Or the restoration of the home that we long for. The Bible says that Jesus is coming to make all things right, to restore us to a place where we will be returned to perfection. Not just that the world will have no sin, but that we can have perfect fellowship with God, to use Paul's language, and then we will see him 
not through sort of cracked glass, catching glimpses of our God, but we will see our Savior face to face. And we will have no reason to shirk back at His coming. You see, where there is no sin and there is no shame, there is a place where we belong. And in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what is coming. So it kind of raises this question, doesn't it? These are promises in the gospel that Jesus takes our guilt, he takes our shame, he restores us to a place where we are in perfect fellowship with him. Do we have to wait until Jesus comes or we go to with him, go to be with him in order for that to occur? Are we simply longing for something that is coming always in the future? Well, you can tell by the example I used of our life group. No. There are places where we know it now. You see bits and glimpses already now. You see it in the communion of the church. If you were to ask me, and this is not the definition I was given in seminary, but if you were to ask me, what is the church? When somebody asks me, what is your church like? What I say to them is the place where you see God's kingdom already. Now, to an unbeliever, they say, well, what does that mean? (laughs) Requires a little more explanation, but that's the best explanation I can give. When I see the lives that you pour into, the way you care for each other, the love that you show, the church should be the place in Jesus' words where they know we are Christians by our love for each other. And in that... We have a glimpse of that future fellowship with God that we taste and we enjoy even if the fullness of that is still coming. So let me give you a better example. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And if you wonder to yourself, what's the Lord's Supper about? Maybe a simple way to explain it to you tonight is this. The supper is the way in which God says to you, I intend to have fellowship with you. In Jesus Christ, your guilt and shame is overcome. I've said it before, I'll say it again, when we celebrate the supper, this isn't just a moment at which we say, well, okay, it's solemn, it is solemn, it is significant, it is important, it is a sacrament. But the reason we call it, at least historically, the Eucharist, not just in the Roman Catholic Church, but the church historically, is because Eucharist means celebration. We are celebrating the death of Jesus Christ. We carry that language forward when we we say we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating communion with our God. And that communion that we have with each other is meant to picture for us what is coming for eternity. That we will have fellowship with our God, perfect fellowship, no shame, no guilt, being in His presence with no encumbrance, and we'll be there with each other, enjoying each other's perfect fellowship as we enjoy the presence of God. Of the Lamb. What is the misery that you face in life, my friend? Is it the misery of failed expectations? Is it your own sin? Is it a failed relationship? Is it a failed job? 
all the miseries that come in this life according to Genesis chapter 3 result from the separation that we that we have from the garden the separation of fellowship with our God what is our misery our misery is that by our fall all mankind lost fellowship with God and by the loss of that fellowship brought his anger and curse on us and we are therefore subject to all the miseries of life to death itself and to pains of hell forever but in Jesus Christ the misery is overcome now at least we see it in part and in Jesus Christ the miseries overcome for eternity in the coming age as we eat the Lord's Supper in just a moment when you taste you see you experience what you were eating think to yourself Jesus Christ has come to restore me to fellowship with God himself and this sacrament is Jesus's promise that that certainly most certainly will occur would you join me in prayer Father, your word is truth. We believe that. It is meant to tell us about the world in which we live and what it means for us to have hope in the middle of a lot of misery. We see it all around us. We see poverty. We see war. We see people frustrated with each other. Where did that come from? The Bible says it comes from that separation of fellowship in the garden. And Lord, as we eat... And as we drink together, we are thankful both for the glimpses we have of that restored fellowship now, and we look forward to the day in which anything that would keep that perfect fellowship from existing, all of that will be taken away. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your kindness that you've shown us in your Son. It is in Him that we pray. Amen.